Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we will be featuring Bill Edrington, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fishing the caddis fly for trout. We're broadcasting live over the Internet as well as on a teleconference call. The link to our online broadcast is available on the homepage of our website, www.askaboutflyfishing.com. The call-in number for our teleconference call is 212-990-8000, and the PIN number is 6913-POUND. This show will be 90 minutes in length. During the first hour, we will be asking Bill the questions you have sent in over the Internet. During the last 30 minutes, we will field your questions live over the teleconference call and the Internet. If you are listening to our Internet broadcast and would like to ask a question of Bill Edrington, just go to our homepage on www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of Bill that says, click here to ask Bill Edrington your most important question. For those of you on our teleconference call, just wait until we open up our lines and you can ask your question live. The broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the call ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website and listen to the broadcast at your convenience. Content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing business is Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. Before we introduce our guests, we'd like to let you know about the gift we have for tonight's drawing. Bill Edrington's going to be kind enough to provide an autographed copy of his book, Fly Fishing the Arkansas, for our drawing. This book describes the Arkansas River in detail and discusses the hatches as well as the strategies to fishing. It also contains a nicely illustrated section on successful fly patterns. If you haven't registered for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which again is www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Bill's section that says Register for the Drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll be announcing the winner at the end of the show. Well, our guest tonight is Bill Edrington, and it's a real pleasure to introduce him. Bill's professional career spans 10 years at West Texas State University and Pueblo Community College, where he was on the sociology and criminology faculty for some 25 years. He's been a fly fisher for over 40 years, focusing on southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. He's also been the proprietor of Royal Gorge Anglers in Canyon City, Colorado, for about 16 years, and his experience on the Arkansas River is unquestioned. His articles have appeared in many of the top fly fishing magazines, and he writes the fishing reports for the High Country Angler. His book, Fly Fishing the Arkansas, has become a must-have for fly fishers interested in fishing in southern Colorado. Bill has appeared on ESPN Outdoors, and he's featured fishing the caddis hatch on the DVD, Colorado's Major Six. He conducts many seminars each year on the life cycle of the caddis, and fishing Arkansas river hatches, and he's also writing a new book. It's a pleasure to extend a warm welcome to Bill Edrington. Hi, Bill. Hi, Don. How are you? Real good. Good. Uh, tell us, uh, what's this uh, new project, this new book that you're working on? Well, it's something I hope about at least five people in the nation would like to read. It'll be <laughs> <laughs> Since I have a background in sociology, I've, I've been interested in several years in the and making that applicable to fly fishing. So it's going to be sort of a cultural anthology of fly fishing, if you will. I don't have a name for it yet. The manuscript's about two-thirds finished. It'll be, uh, it'll be a look at the history of fly fishing and how it's changed, 
both from a perspective of the industry and from the perspective of the fly fisher or slash consumer, if you will. Um, we're going to look at a lot of things about the changes in fishing techniques and what drives that, crowded rivers and what can possibly be done about that, some of the solutions that are being looked at. and. Um, just pretty much an overall look at the at the growing culture of fly fishing in the United States, and, I'll, and I'm, I'm sure I'll hold it the United States. Uh, uh, the fly fishing public in in Europe and Asia is somewhat different, and uh, they look at sports somewhat differently than we do. So it, it's been a it's been a neat uh, endeavor, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to getting it out there. It's probably about nine months to a year away. Well, it sounds like an interesting departure from the usual how-to fly fishing book. Yeah, it'll be quite different from that. Yeah. Bill, why don't we start with maybe just the, maybe you could describe the life cycle of the caddis and, and what we're looking at in this insect, because I think that kind of gives us some basis to go through all the other things we'd like to talk about, but I think we need some, some grounding. Sure, there's probably some definitions in, in uh, taking a look at the life cycle of the caddis. That's important, important to... Um, the average fly fisher, uh, first of all, a caddis has uh, what we call an incomplete life cycle. It doesn't emerge from a shuck like a mayfly does. It uh, it actually pupates. Some caddis pupate in the river as, sweep, as free-swimming caddis. Others build little nets that they live in uh, most of their life. Others are case builders like the brachycentris caddis that uh, uh, is the one that seems to drive most people's questions. And when we're talking about the life cycle of the brachycentris, we're talking about a case builder, an actual insect that builds a little tent-shaped uh, or cone-shaped case and uh, lives in that case as a larva, actually tethers and feeds for almost a year before it closes that case, pupates, and then hatches within hours of, being, of eating its way through that, that case closure. So Brachycentris caddis, or the spring caddis, or the Mother's Day caddis, uh, uh, I call it a tax day caddis, uh, there's lots of names for it. Nonetheless, that common granum is, uh, is the bug that most people concern themselves with in the caddis life cycle. So there is no such thing as a caddis emerger, caddis pupate, they do not emerge, even though we use the word cross-reference to fly patterns often. Uh, they are technically pupa and not emergers. That's the one big thing that makes them different from, say, perhaps a blue-winged olive mayfly. So when you say pupate, rather than emerge, they come right out of whatever... They change their... Yes, they do. They change their body form, whether it be as they are swimming inside a woven net or inside a case. They actually change their body form from a larva to a pupa. They are an aquatic moth, so you can equate them to a terrestrial moth that that builds a cocoon and then emerges as a as a uh, as, as an adult. The caddis pupa literally emerges as an aquatic insect and drifts until it has uh, the proper amount of oxygen and temperature in order to hatch into an adult, and then it it sprouts those wings and flies away. Does it make a difference to the angler if uh, they're looking for a net builder or a free floater or a cased variety? In some sense, uh, you, you need to, uh, I think without getting extremely scientific about these things, which 
a lot of us in the fly fishing industry have a bad habit of doing. I think we oftentimes forget that we're that we're out there to fish and have fun, and we spend a whole lot of time worrying about these bugs and, and what makes them tick. But it is important to know the behavior. People need to know that there are different colors and bodies, and there are different sizes. Caddis all flutter off the surface of the water in much the same way, regardless of the species. So therefore, caddis need to be fished uh, up across and downstream, skating them, skittering them, if you will, to where they look like a natural. Caddis do not dead drift on the water after they uh, after they turn into adults. They skate off the water pretty much when they when they turn into adults. They move rather quickly, almost like a moth does away from a flame. Most of us have seen caddis in the surface tension of the water, and they all flutter and flutter and sort of look like little fuzzy bugs there for a while, and then all of a sudden they're, they're gone. They don't float like a mayfly. So, yeah, it's important to know which one you're fishing for the size and the color. They're all pretty much the same shape. What about the, you know, you mentioned the case. Uh, is that an option as far as trying to duplicate that in fly form? You know, it is in a sense that the trout will oftentimes uh, rub those cases off the rocks and the sticks with their nose. I know we often catch fish that have a raw nose, uh, particularly in the springtime, and that's from them rubbing case caddis off and, and lining up and eating them. You can certainly catch fish on a case caddis, even though technically I assume you'd have to go down and super glue it to a rock and sit there and wait until the fish rubbed it off. That's not that's not reality. You certainly there are lots of good case caddis patterns out there, like an old bread crust nymph, for example, that's that's as good as gold. Fish certainly eat them. There's no question they eat them. But they do have to remove them from sticks and from and from rocks and from substrate structure. Uh, they don't drift away in the case as a lot of people think they do. They have to be they have to be rubbed off by the fish. Some of the net builders obviously are eaten eaten by fish, but that's another story. Now the progression of the hatch, as you said, we start in the in the case with mm -hmm. a net at the bottom, and, and the, the, the hatch starts going up through the water and then to a, a dry fly situation. Can you kind of describe uh, maybe how you would rig or, or fish that? the day progress? Absolutely. Um, I, have a, I have a strategy for that outlined in my book that I think is pretty simple for most fly fishers. It's a four-step strategy whereby you can cover the entire life cycle of the bug throughout a fishing day. Generally starting out with caddis larvae in the morning, uh, let's say at daybreak or shortly thereafter, water temperatures are probably going to come in on most American freestone rivers and particularly in the Rocky Mountains. Water temperatures are going to come in um, at around 48, 49, 50 degrees as the sun comes up. There are many caddis in the water at the same time, many different species. Uh, in the Rocky Mountain West, we find a sort of a double hatch of Racophila. Colorado Densis is the, is the uh, common one in this part of the country. There's Racophila bifila. There's my goodness, there's, there are dozens of uh, species. A Rikophila is a free swimmer, and that larva exists in the water at the same time the Brachycentris pupa are going to release. So oftentimes we start out in the morning fishing a caddis larva. In fact, we're fishing it for the Rikophila, not the Brachycentris. So 
as the water warms and the brachycentris begin to uh, the pupa cut cut loose from those cases and begin to drift at a let's say approximately 51 52 degrees they're drifting toward the bottom so we can attach a pupa behind that caddis larva and fish it as water continues to warm and those pupa drift up through the buffer zone into the meniscus or into the into the surface film and they reach the proper levels of oxygen which is provided by most riffles in streams that's by the way where the caddis do hatch is in riffle water I noticed that someone had asked a question about that. And they do hatch in riffles. They do not hatch in slow pools and runs. Caddis like lots of oxygen. So when they get that proper oxygen content along with, let's say, 55, 56 degrees of surface tension temperature, then they'll hatch. So at that point in time, we can fish the adult followed by an unweighted pupa much like a LaFontaine sparkle pupa, or my friend Larry Kingry has one that's a terrific pattern called a bubble pupa. It has a CDC overwing that allows it to float up in the surface film. So just to sort of rehash that to this point, we can start out in the morning with a caddis larva and a deep-running caddis pupa, and then we could move up to our second rig of being an adult and a pupa swimming along behind or trailing along behind that is a shallow-running pupa. I quite honestly fish that fish that rig all the way through the hatch as the adults are coming up. Main reason is because, and it's been my experience that fish, even though they're eating adults, sometimes pretty voraciously, and other times kind of willy nilly, they are continuing to feed on pupa simply because pupa don't have wings and pupa don't fly away. Trout learn really quickly in these massive blanket caddis hatches in the springtime that they don't need to have to chase adults that will fly away quickly on them. For the first two or three days as a hatch matures on a river, like the one I live on the Arkansas, I'll see brown trout really actively pursuing adults, but after two or three days they're not nearly as active and not nearly as interested. So through the hatch, through the blanket, I keep fishing that elk hair, caddis, uh, I like the foam bodies, you could use peacock bodies, any, any of your favorite. Brachycentris caddis are dark, dark chocolate, dark green like peacock. I like black foam and dark gray foam. Uh, I like foam because it carries that, uh, that pupa really well. Uh, I fished that all the way through the hatch. I noticed we had a lot of questions about what you do when you have that blanket of bugs on the water, one, one bug every square centimeter. And that does happen. The, the, these hatches are so intense that oftentimes they confuse people. And you'll see a few fish rising, but ironically, you don't see many fish rising at all. The reason for that is they've already glutted themselves on the pupa. You know? <laughs> so they've really, they've really lined up at the buffet line and overeaten badly. We catch fish that actually regurgitate pupa and, and adults in their hands. What do you do then? I tell you quite honestly, Take pictures of the hatch, uh, 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 admire it. If you need to fish and you feel the need after you fish, let's say from seven o'clock in the morning and all the way up to two or three in the afternoon, when this hatch is so intense, you still you still need to go out and hammer them up a little bit. I find one of the best strategies is to take a big weighted woolly bugger and go back to the bottom and strip it for the big fish that have not been actively pursuing those caddis up on the surface. Sometimes you'll take a few, sometimes you won't. I know a lot of people have, 
have little magic bugs they use. A lot of people use royal wolves. A lot of people will use a big stimulator thinking if they put a big dry fly out there that they might get a rise, and they certainly might. There's no question that they might. No question that that is, that is the way to approach that is with something vastly different. I like streamers. Instead of going to big drives, I think they're a little more uh, successful. When you just said, uh, kind of sparked my interest, you said, uh, you know, go deep for the big fish. So mm -hmm. uh, are you saying that, in general, the bigger fish aren't taking those pupa at the surface? That's correct, yeah. They'll, stay, lo they'll stay low still, just protecting. Yeah, you know how big fish are. Uh, I do find them in the, in, the, in the infant days of the hatch. We find big fish getting stupid and coming up and taking caddis pupa and caddis adults. I don't think it lasts very long as a hatch matures. Say you're at point A in the river, the first three or four days you may catch some big fish, but 15 days into that hatch, I think you're back to the pretty much run-of-the-mill two- and three-year-old, uh, maybe four-year-old trout. Uh, in our case on this river, wild browns, and of course as they get older they become predators anyway. Blanket hatches do certainly interest them and obviously feed on them because that's Mother Nature's way of preparing them for runoff. But but big fish uh, oftentimes get disinterested, and you have to you know if you're it's always kind of fun I think in these in these big blanket caddis hatches to see what you can pull up without using a caddis. I've even had I've even seen days in in, in really intense caddis hatches on this river. When clouds come over, and I've watched fish switch to blue-winged olives almost oh, immediately. Yeah. So that has that hatch is being masked at times by cats. It's almost like the fish prefer the blue wings. It's like they've just had so much of that huge salad bar and cheeseburgers that when you know every time somebody throws out the lobster tail, they still want it. I think oh. they I think the mayflies taste better than cats. I know I've, I've probably consumed a lot of them in my day, but. I don't remember that mayfly tasted much better than cats, but trout seem to think it does, I believe. We, uh, well, Don and I can attest to, to that situation because yeah. last spring we were down there in the Mother's Day hatch uh, on the Arkansas River where you are, and uh, that afternoon we were untying caddis, tying on blue wing olives, untying caddis, and mm -hmm. back and forth trying to figure mm -hmm. out what, what was going on because uh, it, it, it was exactly as you described. You know, yeah. they're mixed in there. They are. It was tough. And, 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 and if you give, it, it seems like naturally, if you give a trout enough, enough numbers of blue-winged olives, they'll line up and eat them every time. And then sort of to con continue before we, we might get sidetracked to something else, with that, with that strategy, uh, one thing people do not need to forget is that after that great emergence, after that great pupation and, and the big blanket hatches, the river sets rather quietly for a couple of hours. And, and almost like it's taking a rest. Around 5 o'clock, we'll see swarms of female caddis, uh, egg layers, gravid females, uh, swarming upstream toward shallow shorelines, eddies, and pools to lay their eggs. So that is a very important thing for most folks. And, and a lot of people that fish these hatches on a day trip often go home long before that occurs. They'll, they'll, at that resting time after these blanket hatches, they'll load up and go home. And I think that's a tragic mistake. Uh, the fish, again, uh, line up and start eating these egg layers as they oviposit using the water friction on their tails. Some caddis or divers, brachycentrists, dip their uh, lower abdomen into the surface friction and use that to drag the egg sac off. That literally 
uh, to put it mildly, disembowels that female, and she dies immediately, becoming a spent. And as as nighttime approaches, and all those uh, caddis carcasses on the water uh, start to clump together along scum lines and foam lines and, and eddies, uh, here come the big fish again to eat dead bugs. And uh, some of the best fish I've caught in a caddis hatch are just briefly after dark for about the first 30 minutes when we've got trout cruising and eating on uh, a few uh, egg-laying females and the spent. So I fish an egg-laying female pattern and a spent behind it, dragging along behind it. So that's, um, again, when the big fish have some cover of they night. They do. And then they'll, they'll right. rise up again. You're well, right. Let's, let's just take a, a brief moment here for one of our sponsors, Bill, and interrupt you for just a second. Please. Uh, so, uh, Don, can you help us with that? This segment of our show is brought to you by Smitty's on Snowbank near Ely, Minnesota. Smitty's on Snowbank is a year-round full-service resort located on the edge of the Boundary Waters canoeing area in northern Minnesota. Snowbank Lake offers ample opportunity for the fly fisher. There are lake trout in the spring, and northern pike and great smallmouth bass fishing can be had anytime. Call the friendly staff at Smitty's, 1-800-950-8310. That's 800-950-8310. Or go to their website at smittysonsnowbank.com. Once you experience Smitty's on Snowbank, you'll come back. Welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing, Internet Radio. We're talking with Bill Edrington about fly fishing caddis hatches for trout. So we'll kind of pick up where we left off here, Bill. We've talked about a lot of setup and the life cycle and how these insects react. A lot of our questions that we've gotten through the Internet over the past couple of weeks have to do with specific patterns and so forth that you've talked about. Now, you've talked kind of generally about that, so maybe we can get a little bit more specific. Um, Absolutely. One question we had was, what is your favorite caddis pattern, your, your go-to fly? Uh, my go-to fly, believe it or not, in a caddis hatch is a soft-tackle peacock, uh, an old, old standby wet fly, peacock curl wrapped on a 2X long, uh, nymph hook with brown hen hackle or darker partridge soft hackle. The reason it's my go-to fly is because it's, it's one of my favorite flies, and I like fishing soft hackles. Uh, soft hackles in the Rocky Mountain West are, are, are virtually unfished. I probably should have been raised in Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I love soft hackles because I fish cane rods, and, and soft hackle patterns and cane rods go together beautifully. So that's my go-to pattern, and I also fish those understanding that fish eat pupa, and they eat pupa on the swing, and they go to and they lock onto the motion of that pupa slamming up into the surface film in a riffle and becoming an adult. I'm convinced that fish move more to that motion than they do any particular pattern or, uh, or any, any particular stage of the life cycle. I've experimented too many times by just clipping the wings of a trough-style elk hair caddis and turning it into a pupa and, and making it sort of Mr. Stubby and fishing it across and downstream and letting it actually get a little wet and swing and pop back up to the surface as the line times up. So I'm a big believer in that motion and fishing that motion and fishing caddis patterns wet fly style with movement. Uh, Western names would be proud of you. 
<laughs> yeah, Sill is a Sill's one of my heroes, and uh, uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time tying his patterns. They're absolutely beautiful. Uh, that body pretty uh, pretty slim, dude. I tie them very sparsely. Yes, I do. I'm a big believer in sparse and, and long long webby hackles, and I love partridge. And I I have a little caddis pattern that a friend Larry Kingery um, designed, uh, which is sort of a fuzzy little. Caddis, and actually, uh, this one is a beadhead, which makes it a little more modern. It has a blue quail saw tackle on it, or you can use blue done hen. It's a tremendous pattern as well. So any of those patterns that look like soft, that are soft tackles or sort of undulate, should be good. My favorite just happens to be an old soft tackle peacock. It's not a dry fly, by the way. On the dry fly patterns, the uh, the adult natural fly has pretty prominent antennae, mm-hmm. and a lot of the dry patterns that you see make a point of including those antennae. Do you think that's real important to the I think fish? It, I think it depends on the species, the caddis. Some of the some of the hydrosakis and and some of those uh, glossosomas that have extremely long antennae I think might benefit from that. I don't know, and that's hard to say. I love impressionistic patterns. I am not a big believer in flies having to look exactly like the insect. However, I do know that there's nothing much better than a good goddard caddis with long antenna for almost any caddis hatching tied to a variety of colors and a variety of sizes. It's a great fly. I just don't like tying it because I don't like spinning deer hair. <laughs> so, do you think I, the color of the body and the wings is real important? And if so, which do you think is more important? Yeah, it's, it's important. Color of the body, I think, is the most important, more so than wing color. I think fish look for wing shape. They want that tent wing shape. Uh, uh, I know somebody in their questions had asked about a delta wing shape, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. absolutely, I think that's a, I think that's a good go-to idea. Wings need to look like that little tent shape, and what color they are, I think, also depends a lot on your able your ability to see the fly. If I talk elk hair caddis, trough style, or otherwise, I like bleached caddis. It's because I see it better, but I'm 57 years old, and, and I didn't used to be that picky. The uh, the other style, the other colors of wings are more difficult for me to see. I really like using bleached elk hair on egg-laying female patterns because you're fishing them in low-light conditions, and I think that bleached elk hair helps almost anyone at that point in time. Bill, when you say, and and I'm not sure that everybody understands terminology, when you say trough style, could you Mm -hmm. explain trough style? Well, Al Troth, the venerable guy who designed the elk hair caps, uh, Al's pattern is an elk hair uh, overwing with a palmered hackle body where the hackling goes all the way through the body. It's a standard elk hair caps that you'll buy whether you shop in a uh, fly fishing pro shop at Walmart, most of the caddis patterns you'll see are what I call a trough style caddis. In other words, the hackle is under the wing, palmered across the body. Fluttering style, in opposition to that, would be one that has an elk hair wing with a hackle palmered over the top of the wing in the front, almost like it was a traditional Adams. Trough style is a general elk hair caddis that you see, and there are varieties of that and different versions of that tied by a lot of different people, but that's pretty much the standard of the industry. Bill, we have a question from the Netherlands. Uh, It sort of refers to the topic right at hand. If you have to pick a pattern 
for the hatch, we think we you've told us what pattern you're apt to use. Mm-hmm. But how about for the non-hatch period? You might see an occasional caddis buzzing around, but uh, there's nothing active going on. Does that uh, do you behave differently uh, in that circumstance than when the hatch is active? Well, I've already sort of talked about that post-hatch period, but pre-hatch is another thing, and that's yeah. pupa. Obviously, you want to fish caddis pupa. To sort of elaborate on fishing caddis pupa also, people need to be able to think on their feet fishing a caddis hatch. I think there's uh, one of the things in this new book I'm working on is how uh, there's a lot of people who fly fish these days that seem to think because those of us in the fly shop seem to think we know what we're talking about, they'll they'll take what we what we say in the shop and take it to the river and they'll fish it one way and they'll continue to fish it that way. You can't do that in a caddis hatch. Pupa are everywhere from the from the substrate all the way up to the surface film. You have to continue to move those systems up and down through that buffer zone or up and down through that water column. As water warms, pupa are closer to the surface. If water is cooler, pupa are closer to the bottom. So uh, changing up your rigs, the depth of that, that, that pupa is running, vastly important. I can't emphasize that enough to people who are going to fish spring hatches or caddis hatches of any kind anywhere. Fishing the pupa, I feel, is the most important stage of the life cycle to the trout because it doesn't try to escape. And trout are opportunistic critters. They only have a brain the size of a bread crust, but they are very, very behavioralistically opportunity seekers. And they don't want their food flying away. It's just that simple. And so they really concentrate on pupa. You have to fish that pupa, though, where the fish are eating them, obviously. And that's important to, to try different, different levels in the water and not just stick with that one, one thing. Mm-hmm. So When you're using the, the pupa as a dropper off a of dry, do you tend to match those up in size and also, for example, in, uh, in color? Or, or do you cover your bases by maybe looking after two different species? Generally, you're fishing the same species of caddis in the river. I have seen some streams where we have two or three species that are actively hatching. That's not normal, let me put it that way. Generally, I want my people one size smaller than my adult. Uh, I generally like to fish a 14 drive, trailing a 16 pupa. So... Uh, I'm going to stay with the same color, probably. Uh, the only thing about adults, and particularly adult brachycentris, is they are almost black. So I'm going to keep my pupa colors in the green spectrum, and I'm going to go to gray or black for my adult, just simply because those bodies are extremely dark. If you've ever pulled one of them off the water and looked at it, you know what I mean. And then same thing if it were a glossosoma caddis, which could be tan, for example, or if it's an olive bug like an oricophila. I'm going to... I'm going to stay in those color. I'm going to stay in those color zones. A lot of people like to tie caddis in brighter colors, but in the same or brighter shades of the same color. Real common to find Gary LaFontaine's sparkly emergent pupa in a really, really bright green, and you can't believe how good that thing actually is. <laughs> it's really a great pattern. Well, you since you you brought up Gary LaFontaine, he has also written a book on, on the caddis. Oh, he wrote the best, yeah and uh, the patterns that he used. So it sounds like you're, you're a fan of his, his patterns. Oh, I, I, I was a fan of Gary's. Gary, we lost Gary a few years back to Lou Gehrig's disease. And, uh, Gary wrote the book Caddisflies, 
it was a it was a rewrite, as I understand, and talking to him of his graduate uh, his graduate work, uh, published his Caddisflies. And I know somebody had a question: if you want to get a book about Caddisflies, what do you get? Well, there's only one, and that's Caddisflies by Gary LaFontaine. Gary's the only person I ever talked to who actively used snorkel gear to go underwater and watch caddis pupate. He used to send his dog Chester across uh, across current seams to stir up the caddis pupa so he could look at them. He'd make Chester swim across and, and come back. And uh, Gary's a wonderful guy. He lived in Montana. He started out working with Mike Lawson and Gary and Mike and and Jack Dennis traveled together for many years doing the International Sportsman Show circuit. Uh, Gary forgot more about Caddison than the rest of us will ever know. Uh, used to be able to call him up and ask him questions, and I miss not having him. So yeah, he he was he was the guru of Caddison in, in the world, without question. He knew more. Uh, I suppose probably Gary Borger. I'm, I'm a big fan of Gary's work too. Gary. Uh, Gary understands aquatic etymology as a fly fisher probably better than anyone living right now. If you want to read something about these bugs or any others, you get you get Gary's book Caddisfly, and Gary and and, uh, and and Gary Borger's book Naturals is also a great book to own. Everybody should have a copy of it. Gary LaFontaine spent a lot of time thinking about writing about and of course tying his flies with the the idea of the you know the emerging bubble or whatever mm-hmm. cat. Absolutely. Well, that, that pupa carries a lot of air as it, uh, as it comes up through the buffer zone. So that bubble, that bubble shape, that, that sparkle pupa of Gary's was the first one to ever really emulate that in a good way, I thought. It's, it traps air and it, you know, I guess theoretically I haven't gone out of the water to look at it like Gary did, but releases little air bubbles making it look real. We have one in our store and on our website that we sell is one of my friend Larry Kingry's works, uh, fondly imitating Gary's pattern but using a CDC overwing so it really is a, is a high floater and traps all that air. So it, and it's real easy to tie. Those bubble-shaped uh, sparkle pupa are so easy to tie. For beginning tires, they can tie a bunch of them up and they are, they are just wonderful patterns. They, they work extraordinarily well. And you can put a bead head on the top of it and make a deep running version. I've even seen some with tungsten bead where you've got a deep sparkle pupa. And then tie some without for the pupa that are up in the, up in that uh, surface tension. So as I was talking about a minute ago, you could tie some with a tungsten bead, and then you could tie some with a regular bead, and you could tie some without a bead, and you'd cover all the bases. Be a good thing to do. Now, uh, Larry Kingry is mm-hmm. using the CDC like uh, the Antron. Then when he ties, yeah, the he top? ties the Antron and then then pulls a piece of CDC over the top. Oh, so using both. Okay. Yes, he uses both, and that CDC makes that thing really. That's my. That's that's really a wonderful pattern to use behind an adult caddis during during a hatch because it rides right up in the top. It actually is almost a dry fly. But that's in your book as well. Absolutely, yeah. and on the website, you bet. Can you kind of describe to us how a hatch moves along a river, and also maybe while we're at it. What are other rivers besides the Arkansas that have uh, oh, sure. these these full-blown caddis hatches that we all dream about getting involved in? Sure. Hatches move up rivers primarily because in the springtime, the hatch follows the warming water temperature. It's not a, it's not a bug behavior, and I think a lot of people think that it is, and, and I wouldn't want to leave that impression. It's 
just that. The hatch matures up a river as water warms. And let's take the, take the river I live on, for example, the Arkansas. Between Canyon City and Leadville is 120 miles of Freestone River. Canyon City is at the low elevation end, setting just under 6,000 feet in elevation. Leadville at the top at a little over 10,000 feet. So obviously the water down at the bottom around Canyon City where I live is going to warm earlier than the water up around Leadville. So when we reach those magic 54 to 58 degree water temperatures, caddis will hatch. Then, because water warms the same way every, every spring from the bottom up to the top, the bugs upstream start to hatch a few, just a few days after that. We call that that caddis migration, and, and generally on this river, if all things were equal and we had stable weather, which is impossible in the Rocky Mountains, as you well know, if we had all those things and they were fixed, they were fixed and not variables, then, then we'd have a seven, eight-mile movement each day of bugs, of new bugs hatching. But weather can slow it down, sunny days can speed it up, all of those sort of things. But you kind of always want to be up front of that. Uh, I, used to, uh, I used to have an old adage that the best way to fish the caddis hatch was to drive upriver, and when you couldn't see through your windshield any longer, which meant that you'd driven through a blizzard, get out, clean your windshield, and drive three more miles and go to fishing, which would basically, is a stupid way of saying, uh, you get above that blanket hatch where fish haven't seen so many bugs for so many days. And it's just all based on temperature. So as water warms, you get the bugs. As far as other rivers, where we have great hatches. I've seen some really wonderful ones on the Roaring Fork and the Rio Grande as well. Are they the magnitude of the one on the Arkansas? No, I don't think so. I've been in some really strong blizzards on the Fork. I've seen some on the Colorado. Albeit that not that strong, I see some really good caddis hatches on on the North Platte. Some good caddis hatches on the Gallatin. But in all my days of tramping around, I haven't seen anything as as uh, overtly spectacular as the one on the Arkansas hmm. any given year. Well, from some of our questions, it sounds like there must be some pretty fair caddis hatches in the Midwest and even oh, back east. You know, I'm sure there are. I wish I could say I'd, I'd, I'd had the honor of fishing all those rivers. I <laughs> just haven't, and I won't. Uh, I, I know that now. Twenty years ago, I thought I would. <laughs> but I'm sure there are some magnificent hatches on rivers that I know absolutely nothing about. The ones in my own backyard's about all I have time to see, and <laughs> ones I've experienced throughout my life. I did, I did, as a youngster, fish a lot in northern New Mexico, and still do. Seen some really great hatches on the Conejos and the Rio Grande down around Taos and Española. Like I say, the one on the Fork is darn near the intensity, but it doesn't last as long. And the Roaring Fork's not as big a river, so you don't get that that big movement of the of the hatch. The one on the Arkansas is spectacular because it's such a big river. Let's take, uh, gentlemen, let's take another short break here for word from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk more with Bill about fishing the caddis fly, so don't go away. This portion of our show is brought to you by the Granite Springs Lodge in eastern South Dakota. Granite Springs Lodge specializes in guided pheasant hunting as well as fly fishing for rainbow trout in their spring-fed lake. This is a unique cast of blast for the area, only a short drive from Sioux Falls. Several packages are available, and their hunting season extends from September through March. Don't miss out on this special South Dakota experience. Contact them at granitespringssd.com 
That's GraniteSpringsSD.com or 605-940-9613. Welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking about fishing the caddis hatch for trout with our guest speaker tonight, Bill Edrington, and he's owner of the Royal Gorge Anglers on the Arkansas River in Canyon City, Colorado. So, Bill, we're, we've covered a lot of ground, but um, there, there's still more to more to talk about. Absolutely. We've kind of got some areas about rigging here, which we've talked a, a little bit about, and then uh, we want to talk more about strategies and also about specific presentations. So, uh, so a lot left to cover here. Absolutely. One of the questions that came up was with, and this is always, I think, the, the question we throw around a lot is, is tippet size based upon the fly size. And there seem to be some rules of thumb about, you know, the, you know, the hook size divided by four, divided mm -hmm. by three, or whatever. Is there any any rule you follow along those lines? I, I, I sort of do live by the rule of three divided into the hook size. And then erring on the size of the smaller one. Obviously, every hook size is not equally divisive by three, so three is perfect if we're dealing with a 12. That means you go to a 4X. If I'm going to a size 14, though, I'm going to go to 5X because, you know, that's two-thirds of the next number. I, I use a real simple little, a little uh, chart when I'm instructing new fly fishers, and I say, hey, if you're going to use... Sixes and eights use three x. For tens and twelves use four x. Fourteen sixteens use five. Eighteens and twenties use six. Twenty twos, twenty fours use seven if you have to, and beyond that go to the bar. <laughs> um, so I uh, I think that pretty much works. There there are there are some exceptions to that and. Used to be we would uh, we would go smaller tippet and lengthen our tippet under really clear water conditions and that sort of thing. I think now we have a tendency to turn to the new fluorocarbons to do that for us because they they have the same light transmission qualities as, as the water. In other words, they're supposed to be invisible, and they virtually are in water. So fluorocarbon has helped us out a lot. I come from old school before fluorocarbon tippet. So I very rarely use this stuff, and I still just lengthen my tippets to get a little better drift and to uh, and to move that larger diameter monofilament further away from the fish. And that seems to work for me. There are some places like Silver Creek in Idaho and Flat Creek in, in Wyoming and the frying pan in Colorado where fluorocarbon's worth its weight in gold, no question about it. Now, in your book when you were rigging and you talked earlier about you know, the combination. It, it sounded like you were doing a two-fly rig, yeah. you know, sometimes a, a dry fly on top with yes. the dropper below that. Mm -hmm. the, when you're doing that, are you using any kind of a strike indicator or always using your no. dry fly as your indicator? No, I'm never using a strike indicator. Uh, I have I have a real rotten attitude about strike <laughs> indicators. Uh, I'm sorry. I can go ahead and get that off my chest. They're nothing but a red and white bobber by another name. I don't, uh, I have seen a few times in my life when a strike indicator kept a fly buoyant. One of those times is when you're on the, the box canyon of the Henry's Fork and you're fishing that rock garden, uh, which is one of the troutiest places in the world. And a big strike indicator, they call them Don King indicators down there. They're huge, <laughs> the size of your hand. And, uh, they actually do serve function there, and, and I understand that. Otherwise, I don't like them. The tip of your fly line is an excellent indicator. 
if you've got 20 feet of fly line laying in the water, it's a strike indicator. And I think we I think we start staring down those pieces of grandma's sweater that we fondly refer to as yarn, and and we we start staring at that focal point, and we forget to look at the rest of the river and everything else that we're doing while we're fly fishing. You know, fly fishing is not really about catching fish. It's about an excuse to be standing in a river. And so I don't like staring at a, at a, at a strike indicator all day. If I'm going to do that, I might as well throw on the toilet and stay at home. But let me, after, I've, after I've said that, no, I don't use strike indicators. I'd rather use big dry flies. I oftentimes, in a caddis hatch, will take a number 10 stimulator and trail a beadhead pupa behind it on a very, very long dropper, 36 inches in length sometimes, with a little micro shot right above that pupa, say six inches above it, the number six or number eight. Uh, with that long dropper and deeper running pupa plus a little piece of split shot, it takes a big dry fly to support that. I love a number 10 yellow stimulator. One of the reasons I love it is every now and then a big brown trout decides he's going to eat it, and that makes my day. So then I'm always glad I had a hook in my strike indicator. <laughs> there you go. Um, so even using a large fly, you know, lots of times uh, I understand that strike indicator thing, and that in a two-fly system, you want to have something on the top as buoyant in order to keep some of those people from dragging to the bottom. We don't want them to always drag to the bottom. Sometimes you do. Oftentimes we don't. Uh, one of the things people need to remember is if they once they put a dropper on a dry fly or a point fly off a dry fly, to be technical about it, if they use 24 inches of tippet material, that 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 point fly, unless you're heavily weighting it, is only running about 12 inches deep. The current in the river constantly pushes that fly up. So. My rule of thumb is if I rip off 24 inches of tippet and tie on a dropper, I have to understand that it's only running about 12 inches deep at most times, maybe 15 inches deep. So I often, I often add small micro split shots right in front of my little nymph in order to get a swing down in the water column a little further. And, and I oftentimes use really long dropper systems. Sometimes they're unwieldy if the wind is blowing. That is a, that is a downside to that. We just got a, uh, this is a Royce from Washington. He had written earlier this week and also just did, did a live question mm -hmm. online. I think we've answered this for Royce, but just to make sure, sure. he's asking what's the um, uh, the right size pupa to fish as a dropper below the dry. And I think we talked about that before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the one size. One size smaller. Right. Yeah. So, I think uh, that works better. Uh, I think in most cases, Royce, you could use that one size smaller and be just fine. Stay in the same color spectrum, drop one size smaller, and you'll be good to go. We do have uh, a, a host of questions that relate partially to those blanket hatches, but not not strictly. And and that relates to number one: how do you keep track of your fly amongst all those naturals? Mm -hmm. How do you deliver it to the surface? Do you really plop it down there, or, or do you? Try to bring it in softly, okay. and and then uh, next is the, is it worth giving it some movement, and how do you skate it? How do you move the fly without uh, getting a lot of uh, tippet drag and that kind of thing? Okay, yeah, great. That's, those are great questions. You know, presentation on caddis. I tell a lot of people, you know, you need to fish caddis poorly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dead drift on a caddis is not always the way to do it. However, there are times. When a dead drift is what the fish are wanting, 
particularly as a as a hatch is tremendously mature, uh, right before it ends, fish start picking off caddis in unlikely places, out of riffles and pockets, and that sort of thing. We find them moving out across rivers and picking off caddis opportunistically, and and so people who fish spring creeks and and fish smaller streams are going to find that. So I know for people listening, uh, they're going to say, yeah, that's true. I do see a lot of that. Caddis are not always in riffles, and that's true, particularly as hatches mature. So I'm not a big fan of plopping it down into the water. I like to I like to let the fly flutter to the water. But I am a big fan of moving the fly once it's on the water. Uh, nearly all the casts I make in a caddis hatch are up and across with a series of men's. I very rarely fish a caddis directly upstream. If fish wants that, I'll do it. But generally speaking, and I'd say at least 80% of the time, I'm right-handed, so I make my cast across a riffle, uh, up and across, do a deep mend immediately. I'll generally do a reach mend in the cast and, uh, and, and let that fly drift drag free for a few feet, and as it comes over my right shoulder, I start actually picking up the rod tip a little bit and making the fly hop on the water. As it starts to move down through the riffle and away from me, down downstream, I often pick up the rod tip pretty dramatically and make it hop and skate. Most of the strikes I get are after I've lowered the rod tip in doing that making that caddis jump sometimes completely off the water, and then when it comes back to the water, I get some efficient strikes. Skate it, swim it, do all kinds of stuff. Practice with your rod with a short amount of line on the water, say 20 feet. Practice trying not to lift the fly completely out of the water, unless that's what you're wanting to do. But just skating it and making it dance. Fly rods are like paintbrushes. It can be used the same way. You can make them do all sorts of stuff especially the ones that we have now made out of graphite. They're so responsive. They're quick, and just the slightest movement can lift the fly. So don't worry about drag-free drift. Worry about making the fly dance. Give it a little personality. Show the fish that it looks like it's something real. Caddis are not always dead drifting, so watch the bugs on the water, and you'll know what to do. Good. Some of the questions huh. we had here were about... Uh, and I think these, uh, some of these people are in your neck of the woods here, Bill. <laughs> okay. We've got George from Canyon City. Uh, God, I'm surprised anybody wanted to hear me talk from Canyon City. Yeah. They, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. You've probably all been in your shop many times. Yeah, George, I'll give you that five bucks later, buddy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, George asked, uh, during the, the caddis hatch, some fishermen have told him to only fish the edges. Is that only for high water times, or do you do it all the time, or when do you quit doing the edges and go back to the main body of the river? Well, I think he must be talking about the Arkansas. I think he's talking about the Arkansas because that's kind of confusing. Uh, uh, you hardly ever fish the edges in a caddis hatch, with the exception of the egg layers. They they do overposit along Edgewater because Edgewater is more calm. Lots of big rivers, and not just this one. Fish live fish live along the edges, uh, and as water comes up when it's high, of course they're along the edges. They get pushed. But I think it's a real good practice on any river. I don't really care where you are to make a few casts before you ever step in the water. I find that beginners get way too excited about getting out of the water, and they'll step on fish on their way to where they think they ought to be standing. I'm a big believer in fishing shallow water. I'm a big believer in not even getting my feet wet if I don't have to. If you live on a river where fish hug the shorelines, 
thinking about think about just taking a walk. There's oftentimes I'll get out in the water and fish back to the shallow shoreline, which should tell me something. So, George, whoever you are, uh, edges are not always the rule in a caddis hatch. Fish often are out in midstream, particularly in long, expansive riffles, and, and bigger rivers where riffles are all sometimes a hundred yards long, and. 30 and 40 yards wide and perhaps longer. Fish are out in the middle of those things, chomping away. So don't just fish to edges. While you're talking the Arkansas, here's a question from Terry. He wants to know how long the caddis hatch might persist on the Arkansas and if any individual species hatch more than once a year and if a guy's coming from out of state, uh, what's the best time to come? Well, does each individual species hatch more than once a year? The answer is no, generally not. Rocky Centris occidentalis hatches in the springtime. Americanus is massed in there with it. We've got Ricopla in there with it. We'll have a lot of Glossosoma right after runoff. Uh, Rocky Centris continues to hatch well after runoff. A lot of people think the hatch ends when the water gets dirty. Actually, it doesn't. The fishing just ends. The hatch is going to go. Mother Nature is going to hatch her critters they're going to complete their life cycle, even though the water might be the color of walnut and running 3,000 cubic feet per second instead of 300 like it is today. You just can't fish it. The bugs are still hatching. Best time to fish this river, April is obviously a killer time. I really love, actually, to be real honest with you, this is not my favorite time. My favorite time is in, uh, in June when the river's still extremely high, even kind of dirty in the middle and the edges are clear. And all the fish are in about 10% of the water. That's when uh, I like to work edges with adult stoneflies, and, and uh, that can be spectacular fishing. You've got all that's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's really not. It's really not fair. That's that's when you can catch probably more fish than any time. I love the fall. Fall in the Southern Rockies is pristine. Water's low, gin clear. It'll make a fly fisher out of you if you're not already one. Makes you want to go fishing. You get that crisp fall air and the blue Rocky Mountain skies. There's not much better than that. It doesn't get a lot better than that. We've got red quail hatches. We've got some small caddis. We've got fall blue-winged olives. Fishy attractor dry flies in the fall, which I love. As a boy, I always remember fishing royal humpies and royal wolves and all those things that that fish are supposed to eat. You know, they're... They're not supposed to eat 28 meters larvae. They're supposed to eat 16 royal wolves. <laughs> so the fall, fall's my favorite time. Maybe the fishing's not as easy. I'm sure that it's not, actually. It's, it's a little more technical. But it'll, if you really are into fly fishing, spend a lot of time on your water in the fall. It'll really make you much, much better for the next year. No question about that. In June, when the water's higher and when you're thinking of working the bank, uh, are you doing that from a raft? Sometimes, yes. Uh, and when you're when you're rafting, do you generally keep moving or do you get out and wade? And then the other thing is, for the guys who are not rafting, when a raft comes through, how long is it that the raft has an impact on the fish behavior? You know, when a raft comes through, it totally depends on the river you're on. On our river here, less than a minute, fish are right back. Rafts don't bother them that much. They see a lot of rubber hatch. So I don't think it bothers them all that much. Fish, fish get right back into feeding mode. And we're talking about springtime and after runoff here. When the rafting season is so intense and so good, the fish are all stuck along the edges, and the rafts aren't running there anyway. So it's kind of a moot point. I'm sorry, what was, what was the first part of that question? 
Well, uh, just whether you were rafting, and, and once you're once you're in a raft, do you stay put, or oh, do you, do you stay put, stop yeah. and jump yeah. out and wait? Yeah, I'm sorry. With water's high, we very rarely get out on these big freestone rivers, and uh, you know we just don't. If water's high, we're using the raft to run down the outside current seam and fish to the shoreline. Uh, this time of year, yes, absolutely, we get out and fish. Our float, our guided float trips uh, this time of year, we're getting out and. And letting people stalk caddis as these had caddis had start. If we get through, if we if we float into a riffle where it's literally alive with fish, we're not about to leave it uh, unless it's on private property that we can't fish on. Then then we got to stay in the boat. But right. if we're on public land, we're obviously going to get out and work those riffles and let people catch a lot of fish. In the springtime of the year, and I think probably some people would take issue with this, but it's my philosophy that walkway fishing is the best. Sometimes use a raft to get to those places, but the walkway fishing is the best. I really like using a raft on this river and other rivers when, when the water's high uh, and, and the edges are clear. The entire river's clear, but fish are still working edge water. Uh, I love fishing from a boat. It's just absolutely phenomenal. It's a great experience. If if I can talk my son into rowing me, I always do. Otherwise, try to get a guide to do it or something. The Arkansas is one of those rivers where you can't just leisurely float along and fish and sort of raft yourself down the river. It's too intense, and you got to keep both hands on the oars. You're either working the boat or you're fishing one of the two, but not both. So there are other rivers across the Rockies and, and in the east where that is the case as well. It's not a tailwater. It's not a leisurely float. So... Uh, People have to keep that in mind. Great. Don and Bill, it's time to take a, a break again here. And when we come back, what we're going to do is field some live questions sure. by phone and through the Internet. Uh, most what we found since we've started this is most of our listeners are on the Internet. So what we do is we, we, we get those questions via a little interface we have. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But, mm -hmm. Don, why don't you uh, give a brief message from one of our sponsors, and then we'll come back and we'll talk to to build more about uh, Tavis. The Federation of Fly Fishers, advocates for conservation and education in fly fishing, have focused on a critical environmental problem. The mangrove forests of South Florida host a wide variety of plant and animal species, including a saltwater fishery. The mangroves have been seriously damaged by human development as well as natural events such as fires and hurricanes. Local federation clubs, in partnership with the U.S., Fish and Wildlife Service have launched the Mangrove Recovery Initiative to restore this valuable ecological niche. To learn more, go to the Federation website, www.fedflyfishers.org, or go to askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the Federation logo. Join the Federation and join in this important effort. Thanks, Don. Uh, it's time for our live question and answer session. And during this time, you'll be able to ask questions of Bill over the Internet or through our teleconference call. Now, if you're listening on the Internet broadcast and you'd like to ask a question of Bill, just go to our homepage at www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of Bill that says, Click here to ask Bill Edrington your most important question. Just fill out the form and send us your question. We'll receive it immediately, and we'll see it right here on our screens so we can address it and, and try to get it answered by Bill. If you want to call in by phone to ask Bill a question live, dial 212-990-8000 and then enter PIN 6913 and then the pound sign. Again, that's 
8,000, pin 6913, then the pound sign. If you're on the phone already, just hold on, and we'll open up the lines in a second. Uh, before we open up our lines to accept questions, we need for all of our telephone callers to mute their phones, and this will help us eliminate any background noise. So uh, if you're out there on the phone to mute your phone, all you have to do is press star 6. So please, if you do that now, press star 6. And if you want to ask a question, once we open up the lines, just press star 6 again and then ask your question. Your phone will be unmuted, and you'll be able to ask a question. We'll be able to hear you. After you ask a question, just do star 6 again, and it'll mute your phone back out. So it's just a toggle, star 6 in and star 6 out. So, Don, can you check, see if we have any questions from our telephone callers at this time? Yep, we'll do that. And uh, if we can, when uh, people send in their questions or by phone, if you could give us your first name and uh, where, you're, where you're from, just so we get a sense of uh, where, where these questions are coming from, go to the phone line right now. Do we have anybody on the line with a question for Bill? Okay, we'll go to the Internet. Well, we've got uh, one question, Bill, that's a, a response to your description of skating the fly, and that relates to are you skating the fly when you have a dropper on, and if so, what's going on with the dropper at the time? It's coming well, from Jim in Colorado Springs. Yeah, absolutely. The droppers fall on the top one if you do have a dropper on. That doesn't bother me much. It's generally a pupa, so that pupa often gets attacked as it sort of re-enters the water, if you will, while you're skating. If you have a lot of active caddis on the water, sometimes just try fishing a single fly. You know, we don't always have to fish with doubles. I've often been convinced that two, two and three fly systems is a uh, is a uh, situation that's been hatched up by fly shop owners in order to sell flies. Uh, but you know, you can fish one fly, and and uh, sometimes if I want to put a lot of activity on, I'll go ahead and clip that pupa off and just fish it by itself. Jim's wanting to know, he apparently is familiar with the Arkansas and is impressed with its biodiversity. He's a little bit puzzled about the fact that it seems like uh, most of the browns he's catching are around that 12-inch range, and he certainly believes there, there ought to be larger fish around. Is that uh, related to how he's fishing, where he's fishing, what he's, uh, what he's using? What, what's your answer there? It's generally the time of day he's fishing, and I can tell him that if he wants the big fish on this river, he's going to have to be willing to fish it right at dark and right after. Uh, these are wild trout. This river's managed as a wild trout river. They are browns, which means at age three they turn carnivorous. Uh, they'd much rather have another fish to eat than to have an aquatic insect, even a gaggle of aquatic insects like during a caddis hatch. So normally if he wants to get bigger fish, number one, fish streamers. The river's got some black-nosed dace in it, particularly here in the Canyon City area. Fish woolly buggers, fish uh, streamers like black-nosed dace, spruce flies, a number of uh, traditional type streamers. Don't fish a sink tip fly line. I often fish a, a sinking leader with a short tippet on it. But the key is to fish late. And the bigger fish I've caught on the Arkansas have all come right after dark. So when the big fish, when pecking order changes, even the small fish then are generally 15, 16 inches instead of that 12 that he's normally going to catch. That's what we fondly refer to as an 8 to 5 fish. That is a 2.5 to a 3-year-old wild brown trout, and the river is literally full of them. So that's uh, generally what he's going to catch if he's fishing sort of 8 to 5. But he needs to start staying late. 
make some sort of excuse and stay till midnight sometime. And he might. So if you want to catch lots of fish, you use caddis patterns mm -hmm. in the daytime. Mm -hmm. If you want big fish, bail on the caddis and go late. Pretty much. Yeah. I think I heard that sounds someone, like a take-home lesson. Yeah, I, I think I heard someone. I don't know if it was you, Bill, or not. Said uh, if you're down there in your area fishing the Arkansas, go out for a nice breakfast, take your time till about 10 or 11 o'clock, then start your fishing and plan to stay late. Mm -hmm. That sounded like uh, rather than trying to to cover, you know, the full day from sun up mm -hmm. to sunrise and killing yourself out there. We do an, we do an evening float. It's as a commercial float. It's a four-hour float. It doesn't doesn't depart till almost 5 o'clock in the summertime. It's the most successful four-hour fishing trip we take. And the reason is because that last hour is incredible. So we actually are floating after dark lots. Don, we left too early last year. Uh, maybe so. <laughs> I was I was beat when we left. Yeah, that happens. There can be long days. That's <laughs> why those siestas under a blue spruce about 2 o'clock are really important. Well, we got shanghaied. We were we were trying to figure out where the hatch might be, and we stopped, and we were eating eating sandwiches by the truck, and we hadn't gotten even well into our sandwiches. But before we had to deal with all these bugs flying around, we thought maybe maybe there were better things to do than rest and eat. Could be. <laughs> eat when you can. Uh, here's a, a question from Dubois of Wyoming, wondering about the soft tackle fly that you referred to earlier. Uh, he was under, Brad was under the impression that uh, this was a uh, spider imitation. And do you tie the fly lower down on the hook bend, or uh, where, where is that uh, soft tackle? The soft tackle's up front. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just a traditional English soft tackle pattern, a soft tackle peacock. Is it a spider imitation? I, I, I suppose it certainly could be. I fished it for caddis pupa my, my whole life and fished it in sizes. Uh, 12, 14s, and 16s. Uh, soft tackles can be a lot of different things. Soft tackles are flies that are tied to be fished in a particular way and to respond best when allowed to swing down through a current and up to the surface of the of the water column. So, my goodness, there are soft tackle betas nymphs. I tie them all the way down to the size 20. A soft tackle for blue-winged olive. I tie soft tackle red quills. I often fish a soft tackle red quill as a spent red quill late in the day. Some standard old patterns like soft tackle yellows really don't imitate anything. They're attractor soft tackle flies. So, yeah, it could be a spider. I've just always fished it as a caddis pupa, so, you know, it wouldn't want it to be confusing, but... Yeah, I... Um... I guess that was my impression as well. Yeah. Looks like we've got a couple questions here. A lot of locals here listening to yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Not much question. to do in Canyon City. <laughs> Not much to do in Canyon City. <laughs> <laughs> Bars must be closed already. Well, uh, one of the questions is, what's the best access? How does one access the river for the best fishing uh, for, for the caddis hatch? And I guess we can tie this one in. How long can you expect the current hatch that started on the Arkansas River to, to go go on? Well, let's yeah. answer that first. It'll go on until mid-May. Runoff on this river is normally May May 12, May 15, up to as late as May 20. During some of the drought years in 2002, runoff only lasted 15 minutes, so that was an odd year. But 
normally, anywhere between May 12 and May 15, we start experiencing some runoff. All the snow fields on this river are 13,000 feet. The big ones are up around Leadville, and so it takes this one a long time to generate big snow melt, unlike some of the other rivers on other drainages. Uh, they're they, they are already in, in runoff. This one is a late, is a late bloomer. Uh, where you where you access it the easiest is my goodness, the whole the whole river, all the public land on this river is managed by state parks. It has some of the best access in the world along US 50, and then again, north of Salida on 291 and 285. Tons and tons of places to go. State parks provides great access and great parking. And, safety for your vehicle and even changing rooms along the river so um, how about right in canyon city right in canyon city we have a yep. beautiful four mile riverwalk trail system through town i'm a very i'm very much an advocate for utilizing that we have great fishing through town so the entire south shoreline of the river from ninth avenue to mckenzie is public along the riverwalk trail system three trailheads and easy to find all people have to do is Come by our shop or give me a call. I'll be happy to give them exact directions to get to that. How, that how uh, if a person wanted to, to get to your website or your shop, uh, could you help us with some information? On how you bet. You? you bet. We're www.royalgorgeanglers.com. Uh, email for me is bill at royalgorgeanglers.com. Easy to remember. Our Internet website has an interactive river map, which breaks the Arkansas up into four major sections, so we get a little bit different fishing report for the different stretches of a 120-mile-long river. It's, believe me, not the same river stem stern. So that's good. Uh, they can enter in on our fly fishing blog, which is great. And uh, so if they want to give the shop a call, be sure and do that. Toll free is 888-994-6743. Lots of ways you can find us. Uh, no excuses for not asking questions. We uh, certainly expect it. That's the business we're in. And so lots, lots of, lots of information out there. One thing that Don and I uh, found when we were fishing there last spring, too, is in talking to other fly fishers on the river, is there are a lot of people from out of state. And if any of you are listening from out of Colorado, you've got to come and try this some, some spring. You bet. Uh, it's, uh, well, Don drove all the way from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to, to fish with me down there because I, I told him we just had to do this thing. Oh, great. But, uh, uh, so he made uh, quite the journey to be yes, he did. hit here last year. But uh, I highly encourage any of you out there to, to do that. Also, uh, get uh, Bill's book before you come and read yes. it, and then you'll be very well prepared. That's what we did, actually, and it really helped us out a lot. Sure, I'm glad uh, to hear that. Yeah, and you can get his book on our website, on his bio page, or on his website. Go to his website, you know, or Amazon.com. There's a lot of places you can get it. Uh, of course, you know, we like to support the authors and that uh, – RoyalGorgeAnglers.com. You can surely get your get your copy there as well. Thank you. So, but uh, do come out to Colorado, but don't stay long. <laughs> We've got the Oregon attitude out here going. So yeah, you know, well, I'm, visit, I'm, but don't stay too long. I'm from Texas, you know, and what we always tell the other Texans: come stay, leave us your money. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're, we're always happy to see you, though. And but all kidding aside, yeah, do come and do come and fish these rivers. Colorado's got some. Fabulous water. Oftentimes gets a bad rep because a lot of people think, well, it's all crowded. It's all crowded all the time. I, I, I had a couple of inquiries today about why we publicize this catastat so much and everything. Well, you know, there's a lot of reasons. I like to see people enjoy themselves, and yes, weekends are crowded. But there's three weekends a year on this river that are crowded, and the rest of the time you've got a lot of water all to yourself. 
Colorado's got a lot of beautiful water to fish, uh, and and people are always welcome. Uh, so no matter where they're from. Looks like we got another question from South yeah, Dakota. Speaking of South Dakota, <laughs> I'll let you go with that one, Don. Yeah. Uh, Joe uh, sends in from Rapid City. He's wondering, you talked about that uh, that magic period, maybe right after dark, when the, the drowned uh, females are, are all gathering up in the foam and that sort of thing. He wonders, do you change your fly? Do you use a different size? Uh, how, is there any difference in your approach when you're fishing that portion of the day? Well, use a spit. Spit patterns are not very numerous. Mike Lawson has a good partridge spent caddis that I that I fished for years. My friend Larry's got one that's tied at an antron. It takes you a bit about fifteen seconds to tie. It's almost like lashing a piece of antron to a hook. It's almost an embarrassing pattern to sell in a store, but we do. Uh, but it works. There's not much to a, to a, to a spent caddis. It's eyeballs and wings, and uh, uh, so kind of want your pattern to look like eyeballs and wings. So I use the spent caddis, and uh, and I'm fishing it generally across and downstream and letting it drift into those, putting some good hard bends on it and, and reach bends on it. And I want that I want that bug to sort of dead drift into those foam lines. I often can't see it. I use a headlamp, and that helps some. Not here to plug fly line companies, but Rio made, uh, maybe even still does, a fly line called Lumilux that activated in the dark, which I think is pretty cool. And I use one of those after dark so I can see my fly line on the water. That's a pretty cool little trick. You just got to do, you got to do it by feel, and you know, it's kind of that Zen thing. Believe me, when fish eat it, you do feel it. They tap, tap, tap away at it. Several times at night, I've lifted up my fly line to make another cast and had a fish on and didn't realize it. So that's how subtle it is. I'm glad other people do that. Oh, a lot, particularly in caddis hatches. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's go back and check the phone line just uh, once and see if there's any possibility of uh, somebody's uh, using the phone. <laughs> Anybody on the phone line that'd like to ask Bill a question about the caddis hatch? No. I think as you. We're we're dealing with the dealing with the internet the net crowd. That's a wonderful deal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so convenient. Me. It's hard mm -hmm. to beat. Absolutely. Another question came in here uh, from Carly in Texas. It says, uh, the question is, what's the difference between the pupa and the larva of the natural caddis and, and the related fly patterns? Evidently, we haven't described that. Okay, well, let's describe that a little better for folks. The larva is the initial is the initial stage of the life cycle. For Brachycentris, that larva is inside the case. Other caddis, like a Rakofla, have a free-swimming larva. It exists in the water column all the time during its life cycle. It's small, obviously, early on, and then gets larger as it matures. A larva is a worm-like looking little creature. As a matter of fact, a larva pattern for a Rakofla caddis is called a rockworm. It looks like a little tiny green worm, you know, just a few centimeters long. Size 14, size 16, 2X long hook shank ties a caddis larva. They're real simple. You can do anything from dubbing uh, a hook with a little olive dubbing or a little tan dubbing or whatever, depending on the on the color of the species caddis we're dealing with, and put, tying a little dub blackhead on it. And that makes a great caddis larva. Buckskin nymphs are a little caddis larva, a little glossosoma. 
Prince nymph is a great little caddis larva. Prince nymph is a tremendous nymph, does a lot of different things if you carry in a lot of different sizes. You can wrap latex material like flex floss around the hook and call it a caddis larva, any number of things. Then the pupa are a little more bulbous. Pupa are, are, are uh, the next stage of the life cycle that, that uh, have actually young, immature wings. They have eyes. They have antenna. Everything's stuck together, kind of, gosh, uh, I hate to use a word, but the best way to describe it is just kind of snotty-looking little thing. And, and so our pupa patterns should uh, look translucent. We'll use a lot of translucent materials like Hairline's Ice Dub. I love on pupa patterns. A lot of Antron. The uh, sparkle pupa are obviously made out of Antron pulled around into a bubble to trap air so it gives them translucency. So that's that's the major difference. One is kind of the, the bubble. The pupa is kind of kind of fat and bubbly, and the larvae are hardcore, a little green or little tan worms. Okay, we've got several questions that are sort of a similar nature, but they come from folks from different, very different parts of the country. One from Colorado Springs, one from Lubbock, Texas, and one from Western Pennsylvania. These folks are learning to fly fish, Great. and they're wondering about. You know, you've, you've kicked around some, some names, but they're wondering about the names of some patterns that you'd be sure to have in your box uh, wherever you are, and also uh, maybe how long your leader would be when you're, when you're using these. Oh, good question. Generally, on caddis hatches, I fish 9-foot leaders with generally 5X tippet because I'm dealing with size 14 and 16 flies, so that's easy. Stay with 9-foot leaders. I oftentimes in the fall go to 12- and 13-foot leaders, but that's because the water's so clear. So 9-foot leader's fine. Flies to carry in your box for a beginner, absolutely. Carry a 16 beadhead prince nymph for a caddis larva. It's a great one. Carry the LaFontaine sparkle pupa. Carry a, a beadhead soft tackle peacock. Carry an elk hair caddis in a size 14 and a size 16. One of the best elk hair caddis, I think, is natural peacock curl for the body. I like that better than dubbed bodies. So a natural peacock curl, as we talked about earlier, that trough-style elk hair caddis, great fly. If you can't get the foam bodies, just carry that peacock caddis. And a hot butt caddis for a female. Uh, Kaufman's hot butt caddis, Larry's egg layer, all kinds of female caddis. What they are is they're basically an elk hair caddis, but they have a little dot on the rear end that, that imitates that egg sac, and it can be a bright color. A lot of people get confused by that, but we're just trying to show the fish color differentiation between the body and the egg sac. So a lot of Randy Kaufman's early patterns had pink egg sacs, orange egg sacs. My God, you could do blue. It doesn't matter as long as it's a different color from the body. So the fish knows it's a female and nothing else. Those would be the simple patterns to carry, and I guarantee you they work on, on anybody's river. If you're fishing southern Colorado, northern New Mexico, for the fellow in Lubbock, you may be fishing... You know, I noticed somebody had a question in here about the Rio Grande. So, yeah, all those caddis are great, easy patterns to, to obtain, no matter where you are, or easy to understand so you can buy them on the Internet. And if any of these folks got any questions, tell them to email me, and I'll give them much more detail in that and where they can buy them. Sure. Why don't you give your email address again then, Bill? Bill at royalgorgeanglers.com. Yep, and... and uh... I think you've answered the majority of his question. We do have a question here from Kurt, who's in Tokyo. Oh, great. And uh, I think you've covered the vast majority of his. Uh, he, he actually had 
multiple points on his question. So. Have him go out and eat some sushi for me. Or not. Pardon me? <laughs> if he'll just go out and eat some sushi for me, it'll make me yeah. happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. Well, let's see. Um, why don't we check one more time here, see if we've got any more resources. Here I've got, uh, got one. Here's uh, a fella who says he's, he's fishing in the morning before the caddis have started coming off. Is he stupid not to be using a wet caddis pattern? What else should he What else should he be using? What might they be eating at that time of day? I certainly would not want to call him stupid. He's out fishing. He's stupid if he's at home working. Uh, <laughs> uh, you should be using a caddis, uh, caddis pupa, absolutely. You should be fishing a wet fly before the hatch starts. He needs to be fishing it from early in the morning toward the bottom, later in the morning toward the surface. That is extremely important to adding a lot of fish to your catch rate each day. Catch a lot of fish before the hatch. The fish are certainly eating. That is the time of day when they're eating the most, and they're eating that. They're opportunistic. They're eating that pupa. So fish that pupa on the bottom behind a larva early in the morning, first thing out of the box, and bring that thing gradually up the water column to where you're essentially fishing it dry behind another dry fly, but fish the wet fly, you bet. Good. Why don't we wrap this thing up tonight? And, Don, why don't, before we let Bill go, let's let's give away yeah, a let's, book. Let's have some fun here. Oh, great. Now's, now's the time to draw for the winner of uh, Bill Edrington's book, Fly Fishing the Arkansas. And we do this with a simple computer program, which uh, basically just selects a random name from tonight's registration base. And I'm going to hit a button, and we'll pop that uh, that random name up. And if you're the lucky winner, we'll be contacting you right after the show to let you know how you'll receive this, this nice gift from Bill. Here we go. All right. The winner is Kitty O'Neill in Michigan. Okay. Congratulations, Kitty. I'll tell you what, you're going to love this book. It, if you want to fish the Arkansas, you want this book in your hip pocket. Now, now Congratulations! Used to, to come out to Colorado and absolutely apply the knowledge. Right? <laughs> Please Great. do. Well, Bill, we really appreciate you being with us tonight. I want to thank you for taking time to teach us more about fishing caddis hatch and, and also, of course, about the Arkansas River. Well, thank you so much for inviting yeah. me. And we hope you can join us again in the future sometime. Maybe when that new book comes out. Mike. I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to. Well, Thanks, next, gentlemen. Thank you. And uh, our next broadcast will be on May 3rd at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And our guest speaker will be Brian O'Keefe. And uh, he will be answering questions about fly fishing for bonefish in the Bahamas. It's going to be a great, exciting show, so don't miss it. Also, Brian is an incredible fishing photographer. So if you have any questions about taking pictures of your fish, that might be an opportune time to do that as well. So we'd like to thank the sponsors uh, for tonight's show. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Feel free to explore the other areas of our site, including the directories. Those are great resources, and they're all about supporting our show. So that's it until May 3rd. Good night, everyone, and uh, take care. So long.